I'm Donna Tatro. Welcome to Kids Under Construction. The focus today on the podcast is how to keep our kids safe from drugs and alcohol. It's one of those topics as parents we all think about and worry about, but what can we do to proactively reduce the risks? My guest today has spent a lot of time researching addiction and educating herself. Jessica Leahy is an educator, best-selling author, parent, and alcoholic. In her new book, The Addiction Inoculation, she breaks down what parents need to know. All right, Jessica, thank you so much for being here on Kids Under Construction. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So first, I really want to dig into this. I want to talk about your backstory. Why did you Mm -hmm. write this book? So I have the best job in the world, which is to get really curious about something and then do a deep dive into the research because I'm a big research geek. I love it so much. I happen to be married to a scientist statistician. So he gets to help me with the more complicated part of the research. I toss the, I toss studies at him and I say, help me make sure this is a good study. So then, and I digest all that and then I translate it for other people. And so for me, both gift of failure and the addiction inoculation and my journalism tends to come out of things that I'm just really curious about. So I am an alcoholic. I have, um, in June, I will have eight years of recovery. So I'm looking forward to that. Then once I got my own drinking under control, uh, stopped drinking, I had to start thinking about my kids because my kids were born with a genetic predisposition for substance use disorder. And about a year into my recovery, I started teaching kids at an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. So for five years, I spent all this time with kids who I just spent a lot of time wondering how did they end up here? What could we have done differently? Where did we fail them? What could have been changed in their life in order for them to somehow, you know, avoid having to be here. And uh, I, I just, I wanted that book on what to do, like what it means when the experts say substance use is, substance abuse is preventable, but what does that mean? Like what's under our control and what's not? So that's, that's the book I wanted to find, couldn't find it. So I just had to get to, got to write it. So I spent a couple of years before I even pitched the book to my agent and, um, and sold it to my editor and, and this is the result. So it was, it's, you know, it's really fun for me. It's like taking a, a deep level, graduate level course in something and then getting to write a book about it. Well, and you get to educate a bunch of parents who would not necessarily have the time or the ability um, right. or the research skills to be able right. to do it. So, but I want to talk to you a little bit about your childhood as mm-hmm. a young girl and mm-hmm. start start there. And then I do want to get into this education, but I want to talk about you and, and how this really affected your life and, and the drive to really Mm -hmm. educate parents about this. So I, both my side of the family on both my mother's and my father's side, and on my husband's side of the family, both on his mother's and his father's side, there's a lot of substance abuse. And, um, So I grew up in a home where one of my parents uh, was an alcoholic who's now in recovery. And that was really challenging, not as much because of the alcoholism, but because of the fact that we weren't allowed to talk about it ever. And if we did talk about it, um, we got in trouble. Um, And 
it and we were there was a lot of gaslighting going on like no 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 that's not what you're seeing that's not what you're perceiving you've got it all wrong and it was really weird and a difficult way to grow up and so my sister and i started as we the older we got the more we realized that if we sort of joined forces to talk about it that maybe we both wouldn't get punished or both not punished but you know get shot down and um it was just really upsetting. And, uh, and then as I became an adult, I started to see it from a different perspective and realized sort of how it was affecting me as an adult. Um, what's really fascinating about it though, is that one, that one of my parents actually grew up with an alcoholic parent as well. And I've always felt really bad that, that they had to go through that. And then I also had to replicate it. Like you would think that I mean, in the same sense that you would think that if I didn't like growing up with an alcoholic, I would never would have become an alcoholic, but that's what's so insidious about substance use disorder is it really just snuck up on me. Um, and the, you know, my parent that grew up with it, you know, I was sort of in a way destined to sort of replicate, you know, parts of that relationship. And so it, as far as I'm concerned, writing this book and learning what I've learned is how I stop that. This stops with this generation. You know, I can't guarantee that neither of my children will have a substance use disorder, but what I can guarantee is that they will have no shame. There will be no conversations in our house around substances that have to do with shame, guilt, secrecy, deceit. Um, that's a really important central part of our family now. Um, we can't afford to not talk about it. So all of the secrecy, that came in the generations before that stops with us. Well, and you talk a lot about the conversations and the scripts and, and ways mm -hmm. to talk to kids, but let's first talk about the risk factors. Mm -hmm. um, trauma, yeah. trauma's mm -hmm. there. Let's, let's start with trauma. Well, let's, uh, okay. Well, I mean, we let's, let's actually start with genetics. Cause um, according to Mark Schick at uh, USC, Genetics is about 50 to 60% of the picture. So that's why I said, we can't afford to not talk about it. That's my kid's risk is elevated from the get-go. Then after that, we have epigenetics, which is a combination of environment and genetics. It's how our, the things are in our environment cause uh, our genes to express. And then that leads us into this dis discussion of trauma, big T, little t trauma, adverse childhood experiences. Thank you so much to the CDC and Kaiser Permanente for establishing through a huge survey that, wow, a lot of negative health outcomes seem to be related to experiences kids have. And then they sort of categor categorize those experiences into a group of what are now called ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. The CDC and Kaiser, well, the CDC, um, if you Google uh, CDC and ACEs quiz, you can take a quiz and find out what your adverse childhood experience uh, score is. It's a score of one to 10. When I was teaching at the rehab, most of the kids had a score of between six to nine, sometimes 10. Um, and you, with the higher your number, the higher your risk. So kids who are, who grow up in a home where there's violence, where there's abuse, where there's substance abuse, where there's um, incarceration, where there's a death, um, where there's divorce and separation, those kids are just, that's a point on their ACE score with each one of those things. And, you know, kids with higher ACE scores have a higher risk of, of substance use disorder during their lifetime. And then on top of that, we have things like academic failure, um, undiagnosed learning issues, 
and behavioral issues. Uh, we have social ostracism and things like a child on child aggression is another, uh, another issue. So the earlier we intervene for those things, the more likely we are to heap some prevention on the other side of the scale. Because I think of risk and prevention like two sides of one of those scales of justice to old timey scales. The heavier your risk side is, the heavier your prevention side is gonna need to be to zero it out. And the wonderful thing about that, and I hope the way I presented it in the book is, we cannot feel shame or guilt about the risks that exist. I, you know, every time I mention separation and divorce, I get this lump in my throat, like, should I even say it? Because that's 50% of first marriages right there. And are people going to stop listening to me when I say that? Because um, uh, that's on there. Adoption. When you read, um, when you read uh, Nadine Burke Harris's The Deepest Well, she actually expands on that adverse childhood experience list and makes, makes a much longer list of things that she's uh, noticed in her um, pediatrics practice with vulnerable children. So there's a whole bunch of stuff on there that could possibly make us feel really bad. Like, oh, great, I'm divorced. Now I've put more risk on, or, oh, great, like I actually did, moved my kid during between middle school and high school to a new place where I don't know the parents of any of his new friends. I've heaped more risk on his side of the scale. So I can feel bad about that and ignore it and not talk about it, feel guilty, or I can face it head on and be empowered by the fact that now I have more information about my kids' risks so that I can target preventions more accurately. So what do you say to parents out there who can list a couple of those things that you mm -hmm. talk about and say, okay, then where do I begin? And mm -hmm. when do I begin? You begin very, very young because, so I'm going to talk about this in the, in the context of school programs, but it applies generally. 57% of only 57% of schools in this country have any substance use disorder, substance abuse prevention program. And of that 57%, only 10% of them are evidence-based. So when I looked into the, all of the evidence-based programs, they are, this is so handy, they're all <laughs> really great social emotional learning programs with health components. Go the SEL! Reason, <laughs> the reason that that is so handy is that we know SEL programs are important. We know they improve so many things from absenteeism to test scores, to uh, behavior, to depression, all that sort of stuff. We know that coming out of this pandemic, really quality SEL programs are going to be of utmost importance. So if the really good uh, substance abuse prevention programs are just really good SEL programs with a health component, let's start there because they exist. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to put the wheel on the cart and get it going in the right direction. Really good SEL programs and really good substance abuse prevention programs start in preschool. And they don't start with, hi, sweetie, this is crystal methamphetamine. They start with, right. why do you think we spit the toothpaste out instead of swallowing it? Why do you think we wash our hands? Why do we even brush our teeth in the first place? What it is, what is it we're brushing? Um, here's a, a medicine container, a prescription bottle on the counter. Can you find the letters of mommy's name in that, on that label? Why do you think mommy's name is on that label? What if you needed the same medication? Could you just take the things out of mommy's medicine bottle? And why not? So that obviously leads to, you know, that's a whole conversation about why we don't eat the Tide Pods and all that sort of stuff and gets kids thinking about substances and things they put in their body and things they don't put in their body and how that affects our health and our well-being. And 
as we have those conversations and normalize conversations about around substances generally, then we can have conversations about, you know, opiates in the medicine cabinet and why Uncle Ted stands out on the front porch at grandma's house and she doesn't let him smoke inside and what that means. And if it's secondary smoke is dangerous for us, what is it doing to Ted? And, you know, all of those things. So we start in preschool, we start very, very young, and it's really um, conversations about health and safety, refusal skills, speaking up for ourselves and knowing who the allies are, where we can go and find help. And that leads to conversations that can turn into, this is crystal methamphetamine and here's what it does to your adolescent brain. Okay, with that said, when I had my two boys in preschool, they're now 12 and 13, but when they were in preschool, I remember being at a house, a mom that we loved and mm-hmm. we were celebrating. It was a great celebration mm-hmm. and parents were drinking wine and mm-hmm. everybody was enjoying themselves. And the mom then gave some of the kids a little sip of wine and me, I said, we're actually going to pass on that mm-hmm. and just kind of let it go at that point. But then later on thought to myself, okay, now I have to have a conversation with Jackson and Asher about this, but you know what? I didn't really know how to have that conversation. So was it okay for that mom to offer these preschoolers a little sip of wine or was it not? Talk a little bit about, you know, drinking before you're Mm -hmm. of age and kind Mm of, well, it's what they do in Europe. And talk a little bit about that. Well, and, you know, that's a really funny example because I've never heard it about preschoolers, but lots and lots of parents say, you know, I'd rather my kid, you know, kids are going to drink anyway. I'd rather they drink at home. So I'll have a function at my house where I take everybody's keys and at least I know that they're safe. The problem with that or the European mythology that you were talking about, that sort of romantic notion of raising your kid like at one of those European moderate drinkers is that two problems. We have to sort of look at this from two angles. Number one, adolescent brains are going through the second of the two most monumental, delicate periods of transition, growth, cognitive development growth, restructuring, rewiring um, in their lives. And once that period in adolescence of brain development is over and done with when it's in their early to mid twenties, you can't go back and do remedial work. It's over, right? So there are things just as there is no safe amount of alcohol during pregnancy or, and you wouldn't give a zero to two year old um, uh, alcohol because of what's going on in their brain. It's equally important that adolescents don't use substances. So adults using substances, not the conversation we're having. I, you know, my husband drinks, uh, my husband, you know, pot is legal in this, in this state. Um, We have all those conversations separately because lots of things that adults can use at low or no risk um, have moderate or high risk, a lot of them for adolescents and some of it permanent. So it turns out not only are we talking about adolescent development and the brain and the harms that things can do to the substances can do to the brain, we also need to talk about the statistics. And the statistics show that if you have a consistent message of no, not until it is legal, not because of the legality, but because of where your brain will be in its state of development when you hit your early 20s, the lower your chances of having substance use disorder during your lifetime. 90% of people who have a substance use disorder during their lifetime started using before they were 18. And if you look at the difference in the numbers between an eighth grader who initiates, and by the way, if kids are going to initiate drugs and alcohol, they're going to initiate most often during middle school. So waiting to have these conversations until middle school, you're waiting too long. 
kids who start in eighth grade have somewhere around a 50% chance of developing a substance use disorder during their lifetime. If they make it to 10th grade and before initiating, they have a 17% chance of having a substance use disorder during their lifetime. And if they make it to 18, it's down to 10%, which is what it is in the general population. So if we can if that message of delay, 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 both for the brain and for the statistics, if we can just get them, I say to 21, but in a pinch 18, um, then I think we're doing really, really well. And by the way, when they hit 18, it's not a foregone conclusion that everyone drinks in college. By the way, um, if you look at the actual numbers, only 44% of kids drink in college. It's just that a lot of alcohol is consumed in college because a very small slice of the population is drinking the majority of the alcohol because kids in college don't just drink, they binge drink. So it's um, that whole animal house thing. And that was the reason I almost didn't put a college chapter on the book because I thought, why bother? Um, okay. Until I started doing the research and I realized, oh, I, sh I should bother. <laughs> should bother. <laughs> so talk a little bit about... Um, how you talk to your kids about what you have done as a parent um, when you were a kid. Like my kids will mm -hmm. say to me, what did you do? Yeah. Did you drink before? And so yeah. I said to them, honestly, yeah, I had a sip yeah. of a wine cooler and I thought, Ooh, I'm having a wine cooler. And they said, how did that make you feel? And I said, honestly, I didn't have enough to have a reaction. I said, the one thing that I remember being in Catholic school, talking about drugs is a, a nun coming up, holding me, talking about do not take cocaine. That was the, that was <laughs> what the conversation was putting her hand on my show, on my shoulder, saying that you could be the person that you could die from one time taking mm -hmm. cocaine. And that stuck in my mind. That's and I never tried cocaine. Yeah. So I will tell you that I wonder I, what do you say to parents about, you know, what, how much should they mm -hmm. discuss about what they did um, to be transparent and to yeah. show your child that you can trust me, you know, yeah. I, I wasn't perfect, um, you know, talk a little bit about that. It's such a tough line. And that's actually when I was doing the research for the book and interviewing a lot of experts in, you know, adolescent development in clinical work with kids, doing clinical work with kids. That was one of the hardest questions I asked. And not many people were willing to go on the record on that one because they didn't have great answers. But it seems that there's an, a really nice sweet spot, which is. And it actually is what we've ended up doing in our house. Obviously, my kids know everything about me because they've now both, actually only one of them has read my book, but we've talked about it all. <laughs> okay. Um, my husband, um, and I'm allowed to tell this story, after my husband graduated from college, he was just really in a bad place in his life. He didn't know what he was going to do. He couldn't get a job in the field he wanted to get a job in. And he was working in, like in retail. He was just really unhappy and hadn't achieved what he was hoping to achieve and didn't think he was going anywhere. And it was just a really disappointing time for him. And he happened to live in a house where they were, where they grew pot in the basement. And so he smoked a lot of pot that year. And we call it his lost year. And the problem <laughs> with that. And so we've talked about that with the kids. And one of the things we've said about it is that here, there were two really interesting consequences of that. One was he um, was a lot, he didn't have the gumption, given the fact that he was constantly, um, you know, in a, a stoned um, to sort of change his life. You know, you have to have the motivation and the wherewithal to sort of, you know, 
figure out how to change things if things are bad. But but if you're constantly just escaping from how bad things are, you don't really you're not in a position to really change things. And he mentioned to the kids, he mentions this all the time. He knows for a fact his short term memory was better going into that year than it was coming out. Um, kid, people, young adults and uh, adolescents who smoke a fair, who smoke regularly, smoke cannabis regularly, have smaller hippocampuses than people who don't. And the hippocampus is where we do a lot of our short-term memory and, and process emotional memories. So we're, we have been quite frank with them about 90%. Uh, you know, there are things that maybe I know about my husband's use that maybe they don't need to know, um, especially if there isn't any good reason for them to know that. But what they do know is that clearly I'm an alcoholic. That's essential information for them to have because, and they have a grandparent that's an alcoholic and that those that's had a real impact on their lives. And at the same time, you know, we've had this conversation about what's happening with their brains, why it's particularly dangerous during adolescence. And look what happened to your father, you know, your father, then when he finally got the wherewithal to change his life, he had, you know, lost a fair amount of his short-term memory and really needed it in order to get ready for the next phase of his life. Cause he had to go back to school. So, um, there's a, and the one thing we really don't want to do is overly romanticize it. One of the people I interviewed for the book, his, his son actually told him he didn't want to seem square to his sons. He didn't want to seem like, you know, Ooh, don't do any drugs ever. Don't do any alcohol. And so he overly romanticized what, how much fun it was in college to try all these things. And so his son actually came back to him in his twenties and said, you know, I don't think that was the right move. You made me want to try a bunch of things because I was like, well, my dad did it. And he said it was fun. So, um, you know, find that, you know, your kid best, but find that happy medium where you're talking very factually about the harm that can be done. If you did have a a harmful consequence based on your use, like uh, an accident, you got arrested, you know, any of those things, those are going to be really important pieces of information because that's about consequences. And those consequences actually can play a really big part in being that little voice in the back of their head of, oh yeah, this is, that might not be a great idea for me either. Yeah, and it's really kind of giving, delivering this message that um, I'm here for you. I wasn't perfect. No human mm-hmm. is perfect. So why, ex- why do you think I would expect that of you? Talk a little bit um, about education um, and mm-hmm. why it really is so important and why you feel like this book is really this teaching tool for mm-hmm. uh, parents and, and, and kids. Well, we know what happened with you with the nun, even if it's stuck with you, we know that um, scare tactics don't work. We know just say no doesn't work. Um, some of the programs that were based on that, those ideologies, that those uh, theories, some of them actually increase the risk that kids would use drugs and alcohol. Um, the early iterations, for example, of D.A.R.E., not the one they're using now, but the early iterations of D.A.R.E., um, kids actually were more likely to use drugs and alcohol after having gone through D.A.R.E. Um, but what we have now is um, the ability to, we have um, programs that have proven effectiveness based on you know outside evaluators looking at the evidence. And those programs, those really good SEL programs with the substance use uh, prevention um, part of them component have components for school and components for at home. So it can actually make it much easier for a parent because if they're like preloaded lessons on using the same language the school is using and talking about the same stuff the school is talking about, the most 
freaked out parent who doesn't want to talk about this stuff will have a starting place. And it's actually the reason that the book that the addiction inoculation has so many scripts in it, because I, the one thing I realized after, you know, doing a lot of touring and speaking about gift of failure is people wanted me to tell them exactly what to say and exactly how to say it. And so I just gave into that. And so in addiction inoculation, there's scripts for what to say to your kids. There's scripts for um, things you can tell your kid about how to make it easy for them to refuse if they don't want to drink, you know, exit strategies and things like that, because those refusal skills and even larger inoculation theory um, sort of is the, the propulsion behind those refusal skills. What we know about inoculation theory is that when we give kids, empower kids with the tools to, for lack of a better phrase, say no to, um, push back against arguments that they're presented with like, oh, it's no big deal. Everyone does it. If they feel empowered to have an answer to those questions or to rebut those statements, they are not only more likely to use those rebuttals, they are more likely to talk with us about the rebuttals and the, and what happened. They're also inoculation theory. The research on inoculation theory shows that it actually generalizes that when we, when we, use inoculation theory to protect kids against one high-risk behavior, we actually also protect them against other high-risk behaviors, whether that's sex before they're ready or you know, getting in a car with a drunk driver or whatever that thing is. So this is all, the book hopefully is all about empowering parents with actual data. And when I say refusal skills, I'm saying, and the reason data is so important is when a kid, when an eighth grader is told everyone's doing it, it's no big deal. And the, and the eighth grader knows in his head that only 24% of eighth graders actually use, by the, use alcohol by the end of eighth grade. That is power. So I hope to empower parents with the book. And I hope that the parents can use the data in the book to empower their kids to feel like they can refuse and that they can have a rebuttal to offers and, and responses having to do with why they won't use. No, it's huge empowerment to be able to offer a child an exit strategy and to be able to go in with confidence to do that. Because if they can't exit cool, mm -hmm. then they're not going to be able to exit necessarily. We, I mean, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> It's so interesting. We we run out of time, but if there was one thing that you wanted to leave with parents today, what would that be? That this whole being a parent thing, whether it's about substance use prevention, whether it's about, you know, helping our kids be more autonomous and more competent in their lives, this is a long haul job. And this job has to be on a daily basis about progress and not the end product. So whether the end product is a grade, whether the end product is a trophy, whether the end product is, you know, um, you know, a score on a quiz, that has to take, the, the process has to take uh, precedence. Because when we tell kids, oh, sweetie, you know, what I really care about is that you're learning or that you learn something from this experience. They don't believe us unless we're actually modeling them that for them on a daily basis. So every single day, that's got to be my mantra, which is, you know, do I want my kid, do I want this thing done perfectly right now? Do I want the dishwasher loaded perfectly? Do I want the laundry done perfectly? Do I want my kid to, to perform perfectly on this homework right now? Or do I want a kid who will be able to do it himself next time. And I can tell you right now, the real pride in my parenting comes from the, those moments when he does it himself and doesn't need me to help him, doesn't need me to um, take over. So process over product, long haul job, uh, 
adolescent well child development is not a beautiful linear slope it's whoo, up and down up and up and down, up and down like the stock market and as long as we can keep a, a, an eye on that um that process rather than the end product we'll be in good shape I really love that. And that really, that theme is really throughout parenting. And, you know, I like to tell parents too, if you felt like you haven't been doing this, it's not too late. You can start. Oh no, it's okay. You know, even kids in college report that they look to their parents for reliable information on health and safety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm so grateful for this book. Parents are going to be so grateful for this book. Jessica, where can people find you and buy the book? They can find everything at jessicalahey.com, everything from um, a speaking bibliography that has like all my favorite books about all kinds of topics having to do with education and parenting, um, my speaking uh, schedule and where to find links to see me speak. Um, And uh, in support of my two local bookstores, two local Vermont bookstores are mailing signed, personalized signed copies of the book for me. So I regularly go down to one of two bookstores and personalize books for people and then they ship them out. So if you want a signed personalized copy, you can go to one of those two places on my website. They're right there on the front page and get the book signed for you or for someone you love. That's amazing. And congratulations. And thank Thank you you. so much for this education, Jessica Leahy. Thank you for having me on. This is a great, I'm so thrilled with the opportunity and so honored that you're interested in my work. Thank you. And you can find me, Donna Tatro, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And don't forget to download and subscribe. Thanks for listening to Kids Under Construction.